Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, give us attentive hearts and minds today. Make us eager to hear from you. Make us discerning and make us ready. Send your spirit to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. If I were to ask you what it is that we do as a church that generates the most questions, uh, the most if I can use the word controversy, I, don't, I haven't really met with a lot of controversy here, but let's go with it. The most controversy, the most emotional conversations, I wonder what you would guess that thing that we do might be. Uh, I would guess that it would be something controversial that we think of as controversial, like predestination or, or maybe something like social justice or uh, elections or abortion or Something like that, something big, the sort of things that keep our whole culture stirred up. Uh, but actually, I'm going to tell you the answer, and it's far simpler. It's the sacraments. Um, the sacraments, more than anything else that we do, occupies a huge portion of, of my own time as a pastor. Uh, in the, if you were to take my life and put it into a pie chart, uh, and you were to... Uh, look at the stuff that I spend probably the most time on, maybe, besides preaching, it would be that. Um, and that's actually not a complaint. I, I promise it's not. Um, I actually love that our congregation and our visitors care about the things of God and care about the sacrament. But I also wouldn't have guessed that when I was in seminary. I, I would not have guessed that that was the thing that, that people would be so emotional about. And part of the reason why I think that the sacraments occupy so much of, of our time, of certainly of my time, of the session's time, is that the sacraments can be a very emotional issue in a way that other subjects aren't. Um, sometimes those emotions come from a misunderstanding, right? So if you believe, if you have a misunderstanding, if you believe that the sacraments are some kind of source of salvation, for example, you're going to be desperate to get them. You're going to be desperate for your loved ones to get them. And so if you don't understand the role that faith plays in the sacraments, you're going to elevate them and think they're even more important than God's word says that they, that they are. Um, at the same time, if you think the sacraments aren't important at all, you're going to feel very put upon by what we do here as a church. And you're going to think, man, these people, they make a really big deal out of the Lord's Supper. They make a really big deal out of baptisms here. And so sometimes misunderstandings can be the source of our emotions when it comes to the sacraments. Um, sometimes the emotions come from the question of whether or not you or your children should receive the sacraments. So if you think that you should receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but you're also, 
you don't think it's fair that you're asked to be a member in, a, of, in good standing of a church somewhere, that's going to be a very emotional issue for you. It's going to feel very personal because it's going to feel in a sense like um, if we say that you should be a member somewhere, it's, it sounds to you like you're being told if you're not a member somewhere, then we don't think you're a Christian. And if you think that's what's being communicated when we say you should be a member somewhere, that's going to be a very emotional issue. And so that's just an example of the ways that the sacraments connect with us on a personal level. And what we believe about them is going to impact how we feel about our practices, especially here uh, at this church. And so all of this is a stew pot of potential hurt. And I think it sort of helps us understand why the sacraments can be such a big deal. Today is the first of a five-part series. Um, and by the way, our, our, our uh, sacrament or our uh, catechism question this morning, I am just so amazed. I love God. God is so nice. You know, he's so nice. He made the, the catechism question line up with the sermon. In fact, next week, you're going to read the question next week and be like, wow, this is really synchronized with the sermon. And then the next week, you're going to be like, this is still really lining up. Did, did Pastor Adam engineer this? No, God did that. Um, we've been reading straight through the catechism. None of it was engineered. God just really, really, really wanted us to focus on the sacraments for the month of January and part of February. Um, so normally what I do here, especially if you're a visitor, you should know this. What we normally do here is what we call consecutive expository preaching. My normal practice is to take a book of the Bible and we open it up and we as a congregation go through it. And each week we come to the next text. We're not selecting anything. We're just saying, what do you have to say next? Which is wonderful because basically God confronts us with things that we wouldn't normally pick. Uh, he gives us texts that normally we're not picking as the top 10 texts of the Bible and the sort of things that you might, might come to your mind. You get to, to look at texts that you wouldn't normally focus on. And one of the other things I love about that method, about ex uh, consecutive expository preaching, is that sometimes what will happen is you will hear what is preached and you might, you might disagree with it. But at the same time, you also know that the pastor wasn't getting up on his hobby horse. And you guys know, I probably know I have hobby horses. And can you imagine how much worse the hobby horses would be if I was picking a different text, Spurgeon style, from a different place every single week? Well, you'd hear my hobby horses all the time. And, that, and that's sort of a risk of topical preaching. That's a risk when you are doing a different text from a different book every week. And yet, now here's what we're doing. We're going to do a five-part topical series, five potential hobby horses. Um, and so in spite of the problems and I think the weaknesses that can come with a topical series, I also know this, and our session believes this too, one of the ways that our church is intended to grow in its unity is not by avoiding hard subjects, but actually looking more closely at hard subjects together. And so unity doesn't come from ignoring differences. It comes from looking more, more closely at the truth and doing it together. And if, and if I may say so, the subject of the sacraments is very important for us to find greater unity around, which is why I think this series is worthwhile. I want us to see our unity increase.
Uh, in our church at the moment, we are, I think one of our elders, it might have been Charlie, he called us a mixed company. He said, we are a mixed company. We have various understandings of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We come from different church backgrounds. Uh, some of you are like me and you're kind of a mutt. You kind of grew up in every single church and every single background and you've been to every kind of worship service and you've seen everything. Others of you grew up in Presbyterianism or others of you grew up in a non-denominational background and all of us come from different places and times. And so that is a beautiful thing that we, that we have different views perhaps on these issues, but what do we do? We worship the same God. We worship the same Christ. We read the same scriptures. We're agreed on God's authority. We're, we're agreed on the inerrancy of Scripture. We worship the Lord together in spirit and in truth. We have incredible unity on the most important and substantive issues, which is a very rare thing in this world. If you travel through this city and you look for people who agree on these fundamental things, there are so few of us. It is a precious thing to have the kind of fellowship and unity that we have as a church. But that does not mean we're necessarily agreed on everything, including baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so if you, here's what I want to say. If you disagree with our church's view on baptism, you've probably seen a few infant baptisms here at the church. Or if you disagree with our practice of the Lord's Supper, my own conviction is that we should at least be clear on what you're disagreeing with. And so I think as that I, as the, the pastor here, should at least undertake to persuade you from the text of scripture that our practice is not just reasonable it's not just fair but i want you to be persuaded that it's biblical i want you to be persuaded that it's not a human invention that this is really what god has said and i hope you want that too um you know hopefully if you're not persuaded on what we do you've been waiting for me to do this maybe you've been hoping uh since you got here really i hope that that he'll make the argument. I hope that he'll show me why we believe this from Scripture. And so if by God's grace you can be convinced of what we do, then here's what happens. The unity of our church increases. And that is, that's really a fundamental desire of mine. And I think it would be beautiful and wonderful. But there's even a more basic reason for this series that has nothing to do with persuasion. It has nothing to do with debates. It has nothing to do with differences. It has to do with the fact that God gave us sacraments. And that when Jesus instituted them, he believed they were going to be a blessing for us. And I am convinced that knowing about the sacraments is going to increase your, it's going to enrich your experience of baptism. It's going to enrich your experience of the Lord's Supper. It's going to enrich your own understanding of your own baptism. If you've already been baptized, I want you to have a deeper understanding of what that means. Uh, even, even as I've been putting together this series, I have been so enriched just getting ready to preach it. In fact, after I finished writing it, because I write my sermons a little further ahead than some pastors do, I was like, I want to preach it now. And instead, I had to sit on it. So I've been sitting on this, eager to preach it, and excited. But before we can address these issues in the coming weeks, one of the things I, I thought about is, we have to know what we fundamentally mean when we talk about sacraments. We really do because um, is we want to make sure, I want you to be, be sure each step of the way that God has said these things. So what are we even talking about when we talk about the sacraments? Because if you get the fundamental question wrong, then every step of the way, you're going to be asking the wrong questions and you're going to be talking past each other. You're going to have a lot of crosstalk. 
And so my plan this week is to address the root question of just what a sacrament is. Um, Why did God give sacraments to us? What are they supposed to be? What are they supposed to do? Why do we have them? Uh, This week we're going to focus on that. And in the coming weeks, we'll build off of the answers that we find there in Scripture. And so this week, we're going to ask, what are the sacraments? Next week, the question is going to be, what is baptism? The week after, who is baptism for? The week after that, what is the Lord's Supper? And then if you're catching the pattern yet, the last, last week, we're going to ask the question, who is the Lord's Supper for? So what is baptism? Who is it for? What is the Lord's Supper? Who is it for? And then this week then, we just need to stay very basic. We're not going to go into all that other territory, but I want you to see overall what we'll be doing. This week, let's just look at this fundamental question here. Um, this, this is a big subject. Um, there is so much that could be said. Even in five sermons, I thought five sermons might be excessive. After I did it, I thought, oh my goodness, there's so much on the cutting room floor. Um, I can't possibly address every question you might have. I can't possibly address every objection you might anticipate. So I want you to know I, we are, you are always welcome to ask questions of me and the elders. But I especially want you to know that as this series is going along. That I'm eager to answer your questions or tell you I don't know when I don't know. And I know that our elders are eager to answer questions too. So please understand that even if in the sermon you don't hear something that you're thinking about answered... You can talk to us. We want to work through these things with you uh, because we want our unity to grow. We want to grow in our unity together. So don't be bashful about asking these questions. Um, I also want you to know that while this sermon has been very challenging to write, the series has been very challenging to to write, it's been good for my soul. My hope is that that this should not feel like a Sunday school class. I know this is the longest introduction to a sermon you've ever heard. Uh, This shouldn't feel like a Sunday school class because these things matter. These are not just ideas to discuss, but they are so intimate and emotional to us that how could it possibly just feel like a lesson to actually understand these things that God has given to us and why he's given them to us? How could that just stay something academic? It's not at all. And so these things reach into our lives. They affect us in every way, and they affect our relationships that we have with each other, with Christ, with the promises of God. And so these are big questions. So let's get to it. What's the outline? We've got our points. Of course, we've got to have points, but this time we have sub-points. So if you've looked at your outline already, you can see that. The, the outline I'm going to follow is, in theory, simple. Uh, sacraments are gifts. That's the first point. And the second point is sacraments are signs and seals. And so I just want to open both of those up. Let's go straight to it. Let's not delay. Um, First, before we go very far, we need to see that the sacraments are gifts. Um, Sacraments are gifts because they're given. They are given to us. They're not invented. We didn't come up with them. Um, When we use the word sacrament, the word sacrament is actually not in the text of Scripture uh, it's an idea that's drawn from Scripture. The Greek, word, the Greek New Testament uses the word mysterion. You know, we translate that as mysterious. It uses the word to describe something that's incomprehensible, something about God that's hard to grasp. And so this is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And the early church fathers, they took that word mysteries and they used it 
to describe the means of grace that were signs and seals. In other words, they used it to describe the sacraments. They used that word mysterion. So in the Old Testament, those sacraments were circumcision and the Passover. In the New Testament, we have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. You know this already because you read the catechism today. Um, Whether or not you like the term sacrament, whether you wish there was a a, a word from the text that we use, um, really that's neither here nor there. The terminology is not nearly as important as the idea. It's at least a useful way of summarizing the special ordinances that God has given to us to bless us, to assure us of his promises, and to increase our faith. Now, under this first point of the giftedness of the sacraments, I want to mention three things. The first thing is this, the sacraments are God-given. They're God-given. They're not human-given. Um, The first place you see this is in Genesis 17. And more than usual, there will be jumping around in the text. So I try to usually keep us in one place in the text and not jump around. But of course, this is a topical series. So we're going to do some jumping around. So if if you're writing on your outline, you might want to write Genesis 17 under this first point. And then you can always read back through it later. Um, But you see this in Genesis 17. Circumcision... Find it, finds its beginning not in the mind of Abraham, right? Abraham doesn't think to himself, you know what, Lord, I should be circumcised. I don't think any man it just ever has, passes into his mind, you know what, Lord, I would really love this. Um, Abraham does what he's told, right? He receives this command from God. God, God tells him, hey, I want you to receive circumcision. God comes up with the idea of marking out a covenant people for himself in a visible way, and God chooses circumcision as the way to do it. Same thing goes with the Passover. God comes to Moses, and he gives him the Passover. He delivers them. He gives them the means of remembering the Passover. It's God's invention, right? God says, let's do this. You do this. In Matthew 28, 19, what does Jesus do? He comes up with the idea of baptism as the new sign of the covenant that's being applied to his people. That's Jesus. Jesus does that. The the disciples don't think, you know, Lord, there needs to be something that marks us out from the rest of the world. Instead, Jesus does that. Um, If you read Matthew 26, or if you read 1 Corinthians 11, what do you find? You find that Jesus commands the observation of the Lord's Supper until he comes again. Jesus is the one who does that. And so the point that I guess I'm trying to to drive home to all of us is that we as human beings, we don't have the the right to invent sacraments for ourselves. Um, They must be instructed and given by God with instruction. And in scripture, what you find is that a sacrament is given specifically and it's given directly by God. And a sacrament has an element of sign and it has an element of seal to it. We'll talk about what those two things mean in a moment. And, we'll, and we find that we are instructed by God to repeat it until Jesus returns. So those are the things that mark out the sacraments in Scripture. That's the first thing. God is the one that gives us the sacraments. The second thing that we need to see is that sacraments are spiritual. And here's what I mean by that, and here's what I don't mean by that. I do not mean that they are vaguely emotional or spiritual, sort of in the sense that modern people mean it when they see a sunset and they call it a, a spiritual experience, right? Uh, I went to the Grand Canyon once, and there were two people. They were wearing uh, some very interesting garb. I think I might call it hippie garb, 
Uh, I don't know if that's an offensive term. I don't think it is. They were wearing hippie garb, and they were talking about what a spiritual experience they had at the edge of the Grand Canyon. That is not what we mean when we say that the, that the sacraments are spiritual. That's not what we mean. Um, biblically speaking, we mean it very literally when we say the sacraments are spiritual. Because what? They are enabled by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is part of the sacraments. And that's, that's why it's spiritual. Um, the Holy Spirit is involved in the sacraments. Um, think of Ephesians 1.4 where Paul is, is giving this word of praise. He's talking about how great and glorious God is. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice that Paul, for Paul, any spiritual blessing that we receive comes from God the Father through union with Christ and through the Spirit, who isn't mentioned in this verse, but he is mentioned in Ephesians 3, where Paul says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. And so what the Scripture is teaching is that any spiritual strengthening that we receive comes from the Father through union with Christ, enabled and applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit ministers to us, not alone, but in conjunction with God's Word. And so what this means is that the preaching and the ministry of God's Word is essential to the spiritual nature of the sacrament. It means that God's Word preached, it's God's Word preached that gives meaning to the sacraments. If you don't have the preaching of the Word then you just have the pouring of water. Right? If you don't have the preaching of the word, then you just have eating bread or drinking wine. That's what you have if you don't have the preaching of the word. It, it, it is absent meaning. It is absent content if, we're, if the preaching of the word doesn't take place with the sacrament. And that's why we're always careful to make sure that they happen during public worship and that they're administered by someone who's a minister of the word. Um, listen to how Herman Bovink says it. He says, The word signifies and seals Christ to us by the sense of hearing. The sacrament signifies and seals Christ to us by the sense of sight. Jointly, they offer Christ and all his benefits to us by the two higher senses that God given than the higher senses that God has given human beings without thereby entirely excluding the sense of smell, taste, and touch. He's, he's saying that we, we hear God, and we taste God, and we, we have an experience with God that is more than just an idea. That's what he's saying, right? We hear him. There's meaning that comes to us. Um, St. Augustine, 1,700 years ago, said almost the same thing. He says, take away the word, and the water is neither more or less than water. The word is added to the element and its result is the sacrament. You need the word of God or you don't have a sacrament. Um, what this means is that whatever, in whatever sense the sacraments are a blessing to us, it's because the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the word of God, has made them to be a blessing. God is the one who is participating to make, make his sacraments a blessing. So we need the spirit. We need the word of God. If you don't have the word of God... There is no sacrament. If there is no Holy Spirit, then there's no sacrament. 
Apart from him, we are really are just going through the motions. We're being sprinkled or we're having a memorial meal. But none of these things will, will be a means of grace. We'll talk about what that means next week. What it means for the Lord's Supper or for baptism to be a means of grace. Paul also speaks of believers as having been sealed by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 and 4. That Paul would use the same word for the sacraments and for the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not hard to see why we would be right in understanding baptism in the same, same way. As being a seal of the covenant of grace. Just like circumcision was a seal of the covenant of grace for Abraham. Um, let me put it this way. The more that we look... The more we see, the more we realize that the sacraments are not just memorials and they're not just psychological experiences for the one who is receiving the sacrament. The Holy Spirit is the one at work to do these things, right? So the sacraments aren't about you. They're actually about God increasing your faith. That's what they're about. So the sacraments are spiritually given. They're gifts of the Holy Spirit third aspect of the giftedness of the of the sacraments that i want you to see i want you to appreciate is that they're church given i made up that term i couldn't think of a good word for it church given um again if you look at the passages where jesus institutes the supper he institutes baptism look what he does in those cases it's those who lead the church that he gives the command to baptize it's those who lead the church that are given the responsibility to entrusted, they're entrusted the, the observation of the Lord's Supper. Um, Colossians 1 says Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so his plan was always to build a church, an organized church that's visible in the world. The, the, you know, the Bible is filled with instructions for the visible church. It's filled with instructions for how they should live together, how they should behave when they're receiving the Lord's Supper, uh, how they should handle discipline, uh, when people sin and aren't repentant, what you should do about that, um, how people should listen to the preaching of the word. Um, it's filled with instructions on how the officers of God's church are to be chosen, what their qualifications are. The list goes on and on. God doesn't believe in an or if God doesn't believe in an organized church, then so much of the text of the New Testament is just wasted. It's just wasted. You see, the reality is that his plan is not just for an invisible church made of elect people who believe, but they're scattered all over the world and they're not identifiable in the world. But, but like Israel, actually, his plan is to build a church of people who are marked out and who are different and who are distinct. A people who are gathered together and visible. They're marked out in their worship. They're marked out uh, by the sacraments. That's why Paul says that we are all baptized into one body of Jews and Gentiles. The sacrament is part of what makes us separate from the rest of the world. One of the first things that marks us out from the world is baptism, like I just said. Uh, just like circumcision made the Old Testament saints stand out from the surrounding nations, so does baptism. And <clears throat> those baptized people aren't meant to live apart from all the other baptized people. They're not meant to be a bunch of islands. Um, they're not supposed to be individual and separated. We're meant to be together and we're meant to come together. And when we are together, we follow the model of the early church. What do we do? What did they do? They sat under the ministry of the word preached. But we also sit under the ministry of the word seen, which is the sacraments. Um, we see this happening early, early in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. They're immediately gathering together. What are they doing? 
They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. Um, Paul and Jesus, what do they do? They assume an organized and visible church. Um, And you know this because they have teachings on excommunication. A very uplifting subject, something that stirs everyone's heart, I'm sure. Um, And what do they do, though, in those sections? They give the church the authority to tell someone with the authority of God that they are barred from the table of the Lord. Jesus calls this the keys of the kingdom. And in this, Jesus says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God doesn't entrust individual Christians with the authority to admit or bar themselves from the Lord's table. Instead, he gave the authority to the church because what did he know? He knew that people needed accountability. And he knew that people flee from God's accountability. And he knows us. We will wiggle away from responsibility if we can, especially when we are caught up in sin. He understands human nature. He knows that when the time comes, you may not be willing to call yourself on your own sin. In fact, people who otherwise seem like such stable, sound Christians, when they are caught in their sin so often try to wiggle away and explain away what they've done. And what we need in a moment like that is somebody to solidly confront us and say, you have sinned. And sometimes that has to happen in a stricter way than you may ever hope. And I hope that's true for none of us. I hope to never uh, be involved in that. But I do know this, God has called his church to do it, that it may have to happen from time to time. Um, That's why he made us part of a church where, yes, we can be confronted with our sin and we can be called to repent. And yes, a church that we can even be excommunicated from uh, if it comes to it. Individual Christians aren't given the keys of the kingdom. The church is. And so this is because sacraments are given to the church. So you look at all three of these aspects of the giftedness of of the sacraments, and I hope you see something beautiful here. This is a reminder that God gave these things to his church, that he blesses us by them through the work of his Holy Spirit. Um, we need all of these in place too, by the way, if we're going to go forward and understand what's gonna, what we're going to see in the coming weeks. The second thing, besides the giftedness of the sacrament, that we need to see is that they are signs and seals. Um, they're signs and seals. There was a reason that I chose Romans 4.11 this morning. You might have thought, he's not gotten to the text yet. Well, blame that on topical preaching. Um, But we're going to it now. Uh, If you go to Romans 4 verse 11, and especially the very beginning, I want you to see what Paul calls circumcision. He's got two words that he uses. It says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal... Of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. He calls it the sign and he calls it a seal. He uses those two words. So keep in mind that Paul, this is Paul talking about a sacrament that isn't a sacrament of the New Testament. He is talking about Abraham way back in Genesis 17. And in that place, God tells Abraham that he's going to be a God to Abraham. And he's going to be a God to his offspring. And in doing so, he tells him, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Sacraments did exist in the Old Testament. God God gave circumcision. 
In Genesis 17, God called it a sign of the covenant of grace. Paul says that it was a sign and a seal of righteousness. Um, The Passover was also a sacrament of the Old Testament. Besides being a meal of remembrance of God's rescue from Egypt, it was also a meal that looked forward to the great perfect deliverer who was greater than Moses, who was still to come. So every time they're celebrating the Passover, they are hoping in the one greater than Moses. Because what happened? Moses died. Right? Moses isn't their perfect deliverer. He was used by God to bring them out of Egypt, but he didn't last. He couldn't remain in that office. He couldn't continue as he was. Instead, they needed a Savior who was greater. So what do they do? They observe the Passover, and they look forward to the day when that perfect deliverer would come. When God gave sacraments, they were taken from things visible to designate invisible and eternal goods. And so, in that sense, they were signs because they pointed to something other than themselves. So, let's let's begin with the first thing God tells Abraham in Genesis 17. God tells him that this circumcision is going to be what God calls a sign of the covenant. He uses the word sign. We'll use the word sign. A sign is a thing. Um, It's a thing. It's an act. It's it's an item. It, It can be even a word. I don't know if you think of words as being signs, but every time you say a word, what, do you, what happens in the human mind? You hear that word, and then you think of the thing that's being talked about. If I say chair, immediately my word is not a chair. What, is, what happens? Your mind is drawn to the idea of a chair. Um, so even our words are signs. Um, a sign is, is a, a thing, something that points us to another thing. A thing is a thing, but a sign points to a thing. Um, a sign is not the thing that the sign points to. Um, and so in Abraham's case, think about this. Circumcision isn't the covenant. Circumcision isn't the covenant, but what is it? It's a sign of the covenant. The circumcision is meant to make you think of the covenant. Just like the word chair is supposed to make you think of a chair. Um, it points to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So getting circumcised doesn't make it so. But it points to the reality of what the covenant meant. Um, it, it's long been a part of God's design that his people would have physical emblems that presented to our senses so that we can sense, so that we can hear, so that we can see and experience the promise of God in a way that's tangible. That's what a sign is. Uh, it's a tangible thing that points to a spiritual truth. Um, it's actually even appropriate uh, for the sign to be spoken of as if it's the thing that it's pointing to. Um, the, that, that's actually what our confession calls a sacramental union. I bet you didn't even know that word was in our confession. Um, but it uses the word sacramental union to describe the connection between the sign and the thing that it's pointing to. Um, there's a sacramental union between the sign and the thing that it's, uh, it's talking about. So what this means is that in Scripture, the writers and the speakers will sometimes talk about the sign as if it's the thing that it's pointing to. Um, and I know that might sound academic, but I'm going to give you two concrete examples so you know what, what I'm talking about. Uh, probably the most famous example. Jesus is sitting at the Lord's Supper, and he holds up a piece of bread. And what does he say about the bread? He says... This is my body. He says, this is my body. He doesn't apologize for his language. You know, he doesn't assume he's going to be misunderstood. He simply holds the sign and talks about it as if it's the thing that it points to. He doesn't say, this is my bread. 
He says, this is my body. Um, Peter does this in his letter. Uh, in one of his letters, Peter writes and he says, baptism now saves you. Right? He doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't uh, assume he's going to be misunderstood. He talks about baptism as if it's salvation. Uh, and he doesn't actually mean that being baptized gives you salvation, regardless of your faith. But he's saying that the thing that baptism points to is the thing. So he says baptism is salvation. Um, and he's doing it because it points to salvation. He's doing the same thing Jesus does when Jesus holds the bread and says, this is my body. So that word there, that term there is sacramental union. There's a, there's a sacramental union between the sign and the thing that the sign points to. And that's why sometimes you hear language that mixes the two up. And because the authors of scripture understand that you, you know what a sacrament is, they're not embarrassed to talk about these things that way. Um, if you've been here any amount of time, you've probably heard me use this illustration about the sign before. But, you know, if I'm in the navigator's seat in our car and my wife says, where is Chipotle? Uh, I wouldn't actually be wrong to point at the sign on the highway and say, there's the Chipotle. Right? You'd, you'd look at it and what would you see on the sign? You'd see it say, it says, exit 72, three miles. And I could just point to the sign and say, there it is. Now, she would be weird if she stopped at the sign, right, at the foot of, the, of the, the, the placard or whatever, that would be strange. Please don't park there. You need to go to where it's pointing you to. You need to go to the exit. Well, the sacraments are similar, right? They are signs. We should go where they lead. We should not content ourselves with the sign itself. And that's what we do. If we, you know, we're, we're parking our signs ourselves at the sign on the highway if we content ourselves with just having the sacraments, but we don't go where they lead. The second thing is, the scripture tells us that the sacraments are seals. So God doesn't use the word seal in Genesis 17, but he does use the, use the word seal in Romans 4.11. Um, he does say that it's a seal uh, there. He says, Abraham's circumcision was not only a sign, but it was also a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So Paul uses the word seal to speak of something that confirms the truth or reality of something else. Uh, an example of Paul using a word like this is, there's another place that he speaks about this word. In 1 Corinthians 9.2, he calls the Corinthian church a seal of my apostleship. He says, he's talking to that church and he says, you Corinthians are a seal of my apostleship. What does Paul mean when he says that? He is saying that people will know he is an apostle and he knows that he's an apostle in part by looking at what God has done through his ministry in Corinth. So it, it seems like what Paul is saying is Paul himself has seen the proof of his apostleship even by looking at the seal. Uh, by looking at the Corinthians, he's able to say, I am an apostle. I am an apostle. But Paul uses the exact same word to speak of Abraham's circumcision. He says his circumcision was a confirmation. It was a proof that Abraham was righteous. His later circumcision added nothing materially to that transaction. It, all it did was signify and confirm it. So the sacraments are seals and they're, and they're signs of the promises of God. Now, third, I want you to see that sacraments are of faith and to faith. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. If you look at Abraham's experience again, you see that he received circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is how Paul makes his argument that Abraham was saved by faith alone. 
This is how he makes his argument that he wasn't saved by any works, especially circumcision. He wants, he wants the Romans to know that doing these things doesn't make somebody saved. And you could be saved before you ever receive them. And, and central to Paul's point is that the sacrament of circumcision had no value for Abraham apart from faith. It had no value. It wasn't worth anything. Um, if God had never told Abraham to be circumcised, he would have gone the rest of his life without circumcision, and he still would have been a man of faith. He didn't need it in order to be a man of faith. And yet, God did tell him to receive the sign. Even though faith was important, the sign and seal was also important enough for God to tell him to get it. Um, for God's purposes, we are meant to be marked out. We're meant to look different from the watching world. We're meant to be set apart. We're meant to receive some physical emblem showing that the truth is more than just an abstract, unseen reality. He wants us to see with our eyes what we already see by faith. And in doing so, he wants to bolster our faith. He wants to build it up. Um, William Hendrickson is careful to say we should know the place of signs and seals. He says signs and seals are very valuable. I love the illustration he gives here. Listen to this. To be sure, it is, it is possible to overestimate their significance. In and by themselves, these signs do not bring about justification or, in general, salvation. However, they do signify and seal it by showing and confirming the promises. And is not that a source of comfort? Listen to these. He's got a couple of illustrations here. The rainbow does not save mankind from being swallowed up by a flood. But it does signify and seal that God will never again drown the human race. The wedding ring does not bring marital bliss. But what married person who loves his marriage partner would ever think of doing away with the ring that means so much to them? Right? The marriage, the, the marriage is not made by the ring. But it's still precious, isn't it? Indeed, signs and seals must not be underestimated. End quote. Um, the Roman Catholic Church has a view, a view of sacraments that, is, that vastly overestimates their, their, the sacraments. Um, that view is known as the ex opera operato view. Literally, that's just Latin that means from the working of the worker. Uh, in their view, the sacrament does something even apart from faith, the faith of the recipient. Um, simply getting that bread in your mouth. Simply getting the cup in your mouth, getting the water poured on you, does something in their view. Um, there isn't time to talk about what that entails, but it's just worth noting that the scripture ties together the sacraments and the value uh, of faith. And it sees that sacrament as of ultimately no value if it's not met with faith. We'll talk about that in a few weeks regarding each of the sacraments as we come to them. But what we're going to see is that the Lord's Supper is nothing but condemnation apart from faith. And baptism is nothing but condemnation apart from its recipient eventually placing their faith in Christ. So we can overvalue the sacraments. We can almost treat them magically. But there's also the danger for some of us that we might undervalue the sacraments, right? Um, this can happen especially in, in a low church environment where there's such a focus on individual experience that... That we miss the need for the sacraments altogether. In fact, we can start wondering, why do we even do this? Do I really need this? Do I really need this? If you found yourself in a church environment where you're asking that question, then, then you may not have been instructed on these things. Now, I'm going to mention in a moment that we might overvalue the sacraments. In fact, I've already touched on that a little, talking about Roman Catholicism. But 
But please know that next week when we talk about the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, I'm going to make the case that we shouldn't undervalue the sacraments. So just know that a lot of the things that we need to talk about, sometimes we get to them a little bit later. So if you think I'm a little imbalanced here, uh, just remember that next week is coming. Um, I want us to positively see the importance of the sacraments. I want us to see that they're not superfluous. They're not unnecessary. They're not unimportant. But the danger of undervaluing does exist, just as the danger of overvaluing the sacraments exists. Sacraments are meant to build our faith. They're meant to fortify our faith. We we misunderstand, we overestimate the value of the sacraments if we let them take the place of faith, or if we focus on the elements of the sacrament without looking at what they point to, if we don't think of where the sign points us. Um, And it can be very tempting to feel a sigh of relief now that your child is, is baptized. Or even as an adult, if you're baptized and you suddenly think, well, now I feel safe. Now I'm, now I'm secure. Uh, apart from faith. Or maybe sometimes we see people who are desperate for the Lord's Supper. We saw this throughout COVID and many of you were at home and, and wishing that you could participate in the Lord's Supper and those who, who aren't able to physically be in the, in the company, oftentimes they wonder, why can't I do this too? I would just encourage a, 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 a healthy understanding of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments will help you to understand that the, the, the sacrament itself is not the thing that you should be looking to and putting your hope in. Especially if you're not able to receive it or if you're not able to have it. Uh, instead... I love what Calvin says. Calvin says the sacraments are not themselves what God's people need. Neither ought our confidence to adhere in the sacraments, nor the glory of God be transferred to them. We should never forget that these are signs and seals, not the thing that the sign and the seal point to. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, for example, we receive Christ by a different means, but we still receive the same Christ that we receive by faith. We receive Christ by a different means, but we still receive the same Christ that we receive by faith. These are signs. These are seals of faith. But they are worthless to save apart from faith. If, if Abraham had never believed, but he had still been circumcised, he would have been overvaluing his circumcision. Right? If you're baptized, but you never place your faith in Jesus, what have you done? You've overvalued the sacrament. You've overvalued baptism. Um, if you have your child baptized, but you don't bring them to church, you don't keep your baptismal vows, you don't set Jesus before them, then you as a parent have overvalued the sign and the seal. Right? You're being, you're being unfaithful to the very thing that God calls you to. That baptism is not magical. That child is not going to magically believe apart from hearing the gospel and being, being fed and ministered to and you keeping your baptismal vows. So if you make a big deal about receiving the Lord's Supper, but you don't actually avail yourself of the means of grace, you don't listen to God's word when it's preached, um, you, know, you, you just don't pay attention, you check out until it's time for everything to be passed around, you may be overvaluing the sign and seal. Right? You treat the sacraments magically when you do that. We must always go where the scriptures, where the spirit, where the sacraments point us, not to the elements themselves, but to faith in Jesus. I hope you see then that the sacraments are gifts from God, which are signs and seals. Um, You know, I mentioned when we first started today that the sacraments are a huge source of controversy, even in Reformed churches. And and I do think that I have an idea why that is. 
And I wonder if you see this as well. Unlike the doctrine of justification, or the doctrine of scripture, or the doctrine of eschatology, or some pick some other teaching of the church, some other chapter in the Westminster Confession, or, or just some other topic that you know is a hot-button issue. Unlike those other things, the sacraments are direct and confrontational in a very different way. Right? Why do I say that? Because while you can sit on the sidelines and not take a position on a theological debate on sanctification, for example. Right? You can just sit by the side and say, you know what, that's for somebody else to work out. That's not for me. But when it comes right down to it, you either partake of the Lord's Supper or you don't. Right? <laughs> you either get baptized or you either have your kid baptized or you don't. So, and, and everyone knows whether or not, you know, I mean, not, maybe not everyone, maybe not everyone's paying attention, but, but it's visible in a way that it's not with other doctrines, right? There's something black and white. There's something objective uh, about the sacraments. You can be noncommittal when it comes to ideas, but the sacraments force us to choose, right? They force us to commit to something. What do I really believe? What do I think God says? Well, I practice what I really believe. All of these questions push us to put our beliefs into practice in a way that ideas alone don't, and they force us to act. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if you've noticed that before. I actually think that's not an accident. (laughs) I don't think that God said, oh man, I didn't realize I was forcing people to act when it came to the Lord's Supper or baptism. It's on purpose that God gave us baptism. It's on purpose that God gave us the Lord's Supper. It's on purpose that God gave us visible signs that we either observe or we don't. That we either have a right to or we don't. And he forces us to take real steps related to them one way or another. It does make the conversation more emotional. Um, It does give a sense that the stakes are higher. But it also reminds us that because of sacramental union, when we talk about the Lord's Supper or baptism... We're not just talking about abstract ideas. We are talking, in a sense, about Christ himself, aren't we? Right? We're talking about our very souls. We're talking about our very lives. God gave us sacraments because he didn't want us to simply sit on the sidelines. He wanted us to actively engage and ask the important question, what do I really believe and why do I really believe it? In a very real sense, over the coming weeks, here's what, you're going to be do, what we're going to do. You're going to be pressed to ask the same question. What has God really said and what will I do about it? Let's pray together. Lord, these are holy things that we are discussing this morning. We are talking about the visible word of your son. We're talking about your promises presented to our sight and our taste, and our hearing, and our touch. Would you cause us in the coming weeks to be driven to your word, by your word, never forgetting that these emblems are given to us in order to press us forward in faith, toward faith. Not faith in the signs themselves, but in your son Jesus, whom they point to, and in whose name we pray. Amen.